The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We are trusted modelling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we are more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. I speak to finance professionals on a daily basis and almost all of us got into the industry because we were good with numbers. But as today's guest will tell you, to successfully progress to the top and become one of the very best CFOs, there are many more skills you need to master. In today's episode, I speak to James Davis, advisor at BGF, one of the UK's most active investment companies, providing venture capital for high-growth, small and medium-sized businesses. After spending eight years at one of the UK's leading accounting firms, James took the bold step to join what was back then the small spread betting startup Sporting Index. He played an instrumental role in growing Sporting Index and later on the comparison site Uswitch, ultimately helping both businesses sell successfully in multi-million pound deals. With nearly two decades of hands-on CFO experience, including four successful exits, James now lends his years of knowledge to SME businesses in BGF's growing portfolio. With James's wealth of experience, we had a lot to explore in this episode and there's plenty of detail for anyone looking to scale a company, including these highlights. We hear James's insights on choosing exit routes and identifying potential buyers for companies who have undergone a rapid period of growth, the four key drivers for valuing your business, and why you should always be prepared to walk away from a deal that isn't right, and James's advice for CFOs on avoiding the uncertainty of the coming 12 months and why embracing automation will help you succeed in the long term. I really enjoyed this conversation with James, and it was fascinating to learn more about his CFO experience and his advice for businesses now that he's moved over to the advisory side. So whether you're currently working towards becoming a CFO, or you're already at the helm and looking at ways to scale your business or prepare for a sale, I know you're going to get huge value from this episode. With all that said, please sit back and enjoy today's episode of The Forward Thinking CFO with James Davis. Hello, James, and welcome to The Forward Thinking CFO podcast. Hello, Stephen. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Yeah, excellent. Uh, So this being The Forward Thinking CFO podcast, I know we've got a lot of great things to talk about today, but to get us started, uh, we'd like to look back at how you got to be in the sort of position you're in today. Can you describe what that journey and the key stepping stones that you've taken to get to where you are now? Yeah, of of course. As you'll be aware, you know, I am a chartered accountant. So I spent the first part of my career getting that qualification. And then I was fortunate enough to work abroad for a bit in, in South Africa and Australia and came back to Safri Champlis and was fortunate enough to be offered a partnership, which of course was very tempting. But ultimately, I decided it wasn't for me. And and when I look back, I think it's probably because I couldn't see, see myself spending my whole career there. So having made that decision, uh, I joined Sporting Index 
and I think I was employee number 14. So a very small business at that time. And, and Sporting Index does something called spread betting. So it's in the betting and gaming world. And over the next six years, I, I rose up through the ranks to become the CFO. And that's when I gained my first sort of hands-on experience, if you like, of, of being a PE bat, private equity bat CFO. And that career lasted about 15 years. And along the way, I've been involved in four successful exits, but I've also had the odd failure along the way as well. And my last CFO role was for U-Switch, which was backed by LDC. And we, we sold that back in 2015 to Zoopla for 190 million. Yeah, uh, that's uh, some big numbers. I know in, in uh, we'll talk about those as we go through. So you joined Sporting Index as one of its first employees, as you say, rising to CFO over the years and along the way, sold the business twice. Now, g going from little more than a startup to, to the stage of selling it for over £50 million, a lot of changes must have gone along the way, and in particular, you know, the roles that you went through and, and so on. Did you have somebody that mentored you along that journey, and how, how did you cope with that sort of change from you know one of the earliest employees to ultimately a CFO of a significant company and selling that? I did have a mentor actually and, and someone who I'm still still use now and this particular person was incredibly valuable to me as as I joined the board it was my first board appointment and the board dynamics are, are fascinating particularly when you have external investors as we did at that time and to have someone who helped me with this and, and in effect be a, a voice in the board meetings was really, really, really helpful. And in particular, probably one of the biggest lessons I learned at that time was, look, if, if we as an exec team had differences of opinions or different views on things, we learned to sort things out before the board meeting rather than sort of airing them during the board meeting. And, and that was something that I've sort of maintained through, through the rest of my, my career. I think the other thing that I had to learn sort of along the way was how to adapt my leadership style. And to start with, if you imagine you're able to sort of wrap your arms around a particular issue or particular problem. But as the business grew, I needed to sort of adopt a more structured approach to, to leadership and whether that was calls or whether that was meetings, you bring all of that into place while also sort of nurturing and retaining that ability to that innovation ability, that flexibility, that agility that had, that had got the business and sporting index to be the success that it was already. So, you know, setting up cross-functional leadership teams, that was something that I really had to sort of learn and, and progress and I suppose personally, one of the key areas that I had to learn was how to, what I call, look up and look down. So look up strategically, think strategically about certain challenges, certain issues, certain opportunities, while at the same time, you know, almost in the next hour or the next moment, having to look down, get stuck into the detail if there was a particular sort of nuggety problem or nuggety challenge that needed to be sorted out. And, and I was probably the only person who could do it. So yeah, those, those were the lessons, if you like, that I learned along the way. Yeah, I think that's uh, some, some interesting parallels there with other people that we've talked to as well. I think uh, that journey as you progress through your career and uh, 
having to learn, well, like you say, about leadership rather than being the person that's doing most of the work. But you know, even as CFO, you're probably one of the most experienced person there, and occasionally something further down, you know, one of those knotty problems needs your attention. I'm not a big betting man myself, as people who know me will know, but uh, I do know that the house usually wins eventually. And, uh, you know, early on, Sporting Index, uh, in fact, you know, this is all on, on Sporting Index websites where I found this information. There's taken a few big hits over the years and a couple of early on, which must have been quite painful. One being uh, Brian Lara hitting 45 boundaries, which cost the company £1,500 each. And as a small company, that's quite a significant chunk. And then, uh, you know, in, in the Cricket World Cup, there were spread betting over the number of wides, which again was uh, yeah, underestimated and, and that uh, it meant to paying out about half a million. Now, as a CFO, that's kind of an unusual sort of risk, I think, for most CFOs. Is it a nightmare for a CFO to be managing spread betting? Is that something you just learn to live with in that sector? I've certainly got loads of grey hairs. Let me, let me put it like that. And I, think, I think that's where they started surfacing. The, the funny thing is that, that uh, when I look back on that time now, um, whilst externally, you know, we, we were a, a betting company, actually internally, we actually saw ourselves as being in the, in the data business. So, you know, one of my first hires, I remember, was a data analyst. And we ended up having a whole team of, of data analysts who were fantastic, absolutely brilliant. And, and what they were able to do was to discover patterns and trends that actually made our, our business remarkably predictable. So whilst inevitably we did have our bad days, it was remarkable how actually if our customers lost money for a bit, they went quiet. But if they won money, you know, some of them used to pick up the phone or, or get online soon afterwards and, and want to have another bet. So understanding the patterns and the trends that were in our business, and, and in particular, the value of having this data expertise within the team was hugely valuable. And, and I suppose the other thing that, that I learned, particularly at that time, was the importance of having the right incentivization plans in place. So I was sort of, if you like, in charge of risk management or certainly helped as part of the risk management team. And internally, we had various incentivization plans that were in place that were designed to, to help our staff, motivate our staff and encourage the right type of behavior. But over the years, we used to tweak those quite significantly depending on, on what behavior we saw and also depending on our long-term goals. And it was really important to us that we aligned our staff and therefore the culture and the behavior to our long-term goals. So while we were in our, our adolescent phase, if I can call it that, while we were growing up, much more of the incentivization was around a bonus scheme or a bonus plan. We introduced L-tips and then subsequently share option schemes that aligned staff to, together and, and where we were going. And I think the other thing that, that is probably worth mentioning is the level of detail that we as a business and therefore our data analysts went into prior to launching a particular product or a particular bet or, or those sorts of things. The research we did was absolutely 
amazing. I mean, you know, I, I can probably tell you that the width of, of the football pitches of, of each of the sides in the Premiership, you know, the, the detail we had was incredible or, or how, I don't know, different cricket balls used to behave in, in different weather, depending on whether it was cloudy or sunny. So, you know, of course we got things wrong. And, and of course, ultimately, at the end of the day, we were there to make money from betting. But we also helped ourselves, I think, along the way, because we really did an awful lot of research and sort of invested in, in the data side of the business to make sure that, that we were as well prepared and as well researched as we could be. Ah, Sporting Index was sold to, to Duke Street Capital for $53 million. This was after you'd been there, what, sort of 14 years or so, 15 years. And can you tell us a bit about how that came about and, and what that meant for you and your role? Yeah, of course. I mean, that, that was a really big turning point for me, actually, and also for the business, because it was uh, Duke Street, our uh, a private equity house. And, and prior to that, we'd been owned by, if you like, high net worths, a, a number of, of wealthy individuals. And this came about rather interesting because I remember going to a board meeting one day with my CEO and we sat around this board table and it became increasingly clear at this board meeting that the shareholders, individual shareholders, wanted different things. Some of them understandably had, had you know, made money out of this investment and wanted to realise it. Others, it was a relatively small part of their their wealth or, or their asset base, if you like, and were happy to be in longer for the ride. So what we ended up doing was actually, and I remember it so well, we ended up basically halfway through this this board meeting. I remember that the CEO and I, we, we basically looked at each other and, and we said, we can't run this business anymore because we don't know what the shareholders want. And that's ultimately how the, the business was put up for sale because each of the shareholder groups wanted something different. And I have to say, you know, ultimately, it was a, a very successful investment for those shareholders. I think they made about 17 times their money. So it was a good investment for them. And as part of that process, when it was made public that we were for sale, Duke Street actually approached the CEO, Richard Glynn and myself, asked us if we wanted to do a management buyout. So that was interesting because, of course, then we, we had a conflict. And as a result, we asked the board to set up an independent subcommittee to run the process, the initial sale process, because neither Richard or myself could be part of that, given the conflict. So it was a really interesting time, but ultimately, obviously, it's a successful one for all involved. A lot of factors involved there then. So so the, the main driver there was the ownership. So it's rather than market strategic conditions or something of that nature it, it was to do with the shareholders and then three years later the business was sold again this time to hg capital uh, for a, a good increase again at 76 million this time so this time it was one private equity owner selling to another compared to the sale to duke street capital were the uh, sort of selling criteria different this time around and you know, maybe the process as well Yes, it was different this time around. And interestingly, at that time, neither Richard, the CEO, nor I actually wanted to, to sell the business uh, because it was doing incredibly well. We were happy with the way the business was going and we saw lots of potential. But interestingly enough, Duke Street basically made it clear that, that 
they were at that time in their fundraising cycle where they wanted to raise another fund. And as we were one of their most successful investments, they wanted to, to enhance their track record and sell us to make the fundraising for their next fund easier. So whilst initially we weren't keen on selling the business, actually, as it turned out, again, it worked out well for, for all of us in that we were able to attract HD Capital as another private equity house to back us. And I think the only difference that is probably worth highlighting is that, that of course, while Duke Street were able to realise all of their investment and, and were able to say thank you very much, you know, Richard and James and, and for, for generating some, some money for us and some capital for us, of course, Richard and I were rolling over a significant amount of our proceeds into the next venture with HG Capital. So in that regard, you know, it was different that, that whilst we, we had a new private equity owner and, and were very happy with them, of course, we hadn't taken as much off the table as we were able to because we were being incentivized to, to make a success of it next time round. Now I'm interested to hear about your time moving on to um, when you were CFO at U-Switch. Now you were there relatively short time actually. That underwent a management buyout as well, uh, supported by LDC shortly before you joined. And then you sold that company to Zoopla a couple of years later for again a high return, reportedly 90%. So how did you help that business scale up so quickly in that time? I was lucky in that that when I joined the business, it had a really strong data analytics capability. So, so Uswitch, as the listeners may know, is, is a, a price comparison website. But, but internally, again, it was it was driven by a very strong data analytics capability. And what, as a leadership team, we realised relatively early on, is that we could actually monetize some of the data that, that we were producing and that we, we were using internally. So some of the information we had on tariffs, on some of the customer behavior, seasonality, pricing, you know, whether it was energy, whether it was broadband, whether it was credit card behavior. And we were able to basically turn what was a very strong internal data analytics capability to produce some really good user-friendly reports for our supplier base that they found incredibly insightful. And from that, in a very short period of time, we managed to generate a significant new revenue stream. And of course, all of that was sort of generated, if you like, at, at, at very little cost because we were producing the reports anyway. And therefore, what we were able to do is is basically generate this revenue with with most of it dropping through to the bottom line. So that was really nice and and that was a a fantastic opportunity. And then the other thing that, again, I I think helped the business grow and, and scale at that time was the ability to develop cross-functional leadership teams. I think when you're involved in in a small business, there, there tends to be more of a traditional sort of command and control organizational structure in place because there tends to be a relatively strong founder or someone who's been with the business a long period of time and their personality and their influence on the 
the business is obviously significant. However, as the business grows, and, and this was certainly the case at, at U-Switch, what we had was we had a, a very flat matrix structure. So we were able to basically pull together leadership teams across different functions. So we pulled together commercial product marketing all together. And obviously commercial came under the, the, the finance function or the finance team, if you like. And this enabled us to launch our products quickly, to go to market quickly, and to expand our, our product portfolio quickly. So that was a, a really interesting time and, and ultimately, of course, incredibly rewarding and successful. A great example there of, of uh, well, a couple of things, a data-driven company again, so you, those similar to Sporting Index, but using that data that you've got to generate a new revenue stream, which sounds like it became very lucrative. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's fascinating. More recently, since about 2015, you've been working as an advisor for the Business Growth Fund, amongst others, uh, helping them evaluate businesses that they're considering investing in or uh, selling, I guess. And you know, drawing on your earlier experience as well, what are your secrets to choosing an exit route and identifying potential buyers for those sorts of companies? I think the first thing I'd, I'd say is it, it's so important that, that all the shareholders and all the leadership team are aligned on the exit route. I mean, clearly, there are a number of different exit routes for businesses, everything from trade sales to private equity to IPOs. Or even, you know, if you're if you're currently a private equity-backed business, there's the opportunity to, to refinance the business, which in some respects is a partial exit as well. And making sure that 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 right at the initial stage, if you like, all the shareholders and, as I said, the leadership team are aligned on, on the route to go down. I think is is really important. Funny enough, when I was at U-Switch, as you said earlier, Stephen, I, I was relatively new to the team. And therefore, was was quite prepared to sort of stay there longer, and saw an awful lot of potential in the business. So I was I was quite happy to roll the dice again, if you like, with another private equity deal. The CEO quite rightly said, "Well, look, you know, I've been running U Switch now for nine years. That's an awful long time, and therefore, actually, you know, I really prefer to exit through trade because that will give me the chance to step back." as well from the business rather than rolling over for another three to five years, as typically happens with private equity. So, you know, that was really interesting for me. And I think the other thing that, that I did at that time, and we did as a team at that time, is we took advice from people we trusted about the different exit routes, because depending on which one you choose, whether it's trade, sell, or PE, or IPO, there are always trade-offs. So, you know, from a valuation perspective, an IPO, you, you tend to get a good, good premium, if you like, if you go to the public market, and you might get a high valuation, whereas private equity, by and large, won't be able to pay as much as, say, a trade sale, because under a trade sale, you know, the buyer tends to have some synergies that they can put to good use. And of course, also, the deal structure is very different, depending on which exit route you take. Um, I mentioned earlier that for the, the secondary management buyout of, of Sporting Index, I, I had to roll over, I think it was about 50% of my equity into the next deal. Now, if it had been trade, 
as it was with U-Switch, of course, I didn't have to roll anything over. So the deal structure is, is a hugely important part of the, the discussion around which exit route to take. And then, you know, there's, there's what you want to happen with the, the culture of the business and what opportunities you see for the business going forward if you're involved in it. And, and again, one of the things that we really liked about the Zoopla deal was that, that they were very clear that they wanted to leave us as a standalone entity, albeit that they could bring tremendous sort of eyeballs, if you like, to the website through the, through the Zoopla website. And obviously there was an awful lot of synergistic benefits from, from teaming up with them. One of the things we really liked about Zoopla was the fact that they said, look, you're doing a great job, you know, continue as you are. And, you know, we will leave you to run your your own business and your own division. So there are dynamics amongst the shareholders in terms of the kind of uh, value you can exit, how much of your shareholding you need to roll over. And also uh, dynamics, if you're private equity owned, that, you know, they have their own agenda as well. So to what extent does the private equity company kind of govern the timing of a sale? And that's, do, do the management have a lot of say or is it really driven by the PE firm? Look, I, I, I think you you know that, that when you're backed by private equity, that you're going to be held for a period of time, that that period of time will vary depending on how you perform. But ultimately, you know, you are under their ownership for a limited period of time. Of course, you know, Zoopla actually subsequently was bought by private equity itself. But of course, U-Switch is still part of the Zoopla stable, if you like, and therefore is still owned a number of years on by Zoopla. Whereas, of course, if we had been bought by private equity, I'm pretty sure that, that we'd either we'd be under new ownership or, or IPO'd. Yeah, uh, obviously, a private equity firm is, is there primarily as a financial investor to, to get a return on their investment. I, and, and I guess that does drive a lot of the thinking. So once you've sort of come to the point deciding that now's a good time to sell and you've decided on the route what sort of advice have you given to CFOs to help position their business and and prepare for things like the due diligence I think there are four basic key drivers for for valuing a business one is the people obviously the skills and the reputation of the people involved the second one is is the brand and and the strength and recognition of that brand then there's the product or the services that the company is offering and the revenue and profit potential of those products or services. And then lastly, there's the customer base and, and either the concentration of that customer base or the revenue nature of that customer base and the channels to market. And certainly it's with the latter two, so that the product or services offering and, and the customer base that I, I encourage the CFOs to do a simple SWOT analysis for those two areas to understand where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are, opportunities, etc. Because a buyer is going to do their own analysis and inevitably sort of dig deep into these areas and therefore being prepared and ready to either answer those questions or to understand where you've got leverage, if you like, in a particular transaction or a particular deal either around the customer base or the services offering, I think is is really important. And when it comes to doing or, or preparing for, for due diligence, 
you know, I, I just, first of all, only involve people when it's absolutely necessary to do so. I think that, that as we all know, a lot of deals fail in due diligence and, and to get people's hopes up or to get expectations up too early, too soon can cause issues and challenges later on. Therefore, I try and keep a tight group of, of people together and limit that group to a small number who know about the deal. You know, I'd also consider using uh, non-company email addresses to ensure secrecy and privacy. And even at this initial stage, the people you are involving, thinking about how you're going to incentivize them for the long hours and uh, long days that lie ahead and, you know, incentivizing them around a successful outcome. So, you know, I think those are important aspects of preparing for due diligence, but probably the most important one is making sure that the business continues to perform. I mean, ultimately, there's going to be a, a stretch, if you like, in the leadership team during any due diligence process. But ultimately, what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to, at various points during the deal negotiation, to be able to demonstrate that not only can you hit your plan, but you can even exceed your plan. And therefore, that the business is continuing to perform really, really well. A couple of really interesting things there that uh, that aren't immediately apparent, like you say, for example, the extra workload involved with due diligence, as well as keeping the business running at uh, you know full tilt. Now, in all of the company sales that we've spoken about, you, you've chosen just the right time to sell, although the drives have sometimes been different. Have you got any advice for listeners on how to get the timing right for a sale and what a typical sale process looks like? Yes, uh, I mean, my, my thought is always that it, it's best to leave some upside on the table for the buyer. If you squeeze everything too hard, they might walk away. So therefore, we were always very conscious and I was very open about the fact that it was important to leave some upside on the table for the buyer. And in that regard, we brought in advisors early. And the, the reason that we did that was because they can gauge appetite anonymously and informally before a sort of a formal process is launched, if you like, and, and have those sort of conversations, which, of course, as the CFO in the operating business, you can't have. So I'd sort of think about that. I'd also stress the importance of, of preparation and, and patience. So being ready to sort of sell the business when the opportunity arises. You know, it, it's a long process selling a business. It's typically, I don't know, it's typically about six to nine months. But being ready to, to do that, being ready to sort of see that there is an IPO window in the stock market where the market is buoyant and therefore there's, there's the opportunity to IPO. Just being ready, being prepared, being patient for the right opportunity. I think that's really important. I'm not too sure there's a, a, a typical sales process as such. I mean, the process should be the one that, that's really right for the business and the one that meets the objectives of the shareholders and the leadership team. And, you know, there are various key decisions that I, I think could be taken early on about whether you want to formally put the business up for sale or, or whether you want to have a private sale process. In other words, just to approach some very specific parties and that will depend on, you know, your views on the buyer pool for the business and, and their interest levels. 
related to that, I, I think that there's the opportunity to, to run either an informal or formal process initially. You know, informal interest can be started by the advisors just by having a cup of coffee. And, and if they believe and feel that the price is appropriate and the timing is right for a particular party that they're chatting to, then, you know, it may be better to run an informal process or on the formal one because pulling together big teaser documents or information memorandums, you know, that, that's really time consuming and, and it takes a, an awful lot, particularly of the CFO's bandwidth, pulling all of that information together and, and pulling it together for, in particular, you know, for an IPO, if it, you know, an IPO and the documentation that's required around that is, is significant. So, you know, those are the, the, the key things to probably think about in the sale process. And then, as you get further down the line, deciding when to give access to the management team and, and to the data room. And I think you probably only want to do that when you've gone exclusive with a particular party and they've shown that they're, they're credible potential buyers of the business. That's great. There's some really uh, great examples there of the sort of thinking that you need to go through. Uh, is there anything that CFOs should avoid doing when assessing why, when and how to sell the company? I think that probably the most important thing that I learned was, was to only appoint advisors if you have a personal rapport with them. So it, it may seem like a small thing, but during the weeks that you work together, you know, it, things get pretty stressful and tense. It, it's a very intensive time. And, and therefore, having the ability to work with people that you enjoy working with, who you respect and trust, I, I think is really important. Another point that you know, I've seen and, and I've probably succumbed to it once or twice myself is, is make sure you don't get what I call deal fever. So, so there comes a time in, in any deal where you just want to get it over the line or, or you, you know, you just, you just feel, well, we've done so much work, we will concede this point or something similar. And, you know, being prepared to walk away from a deal that isn't right or that doesn't achieve the investor's objectives, I think is is really really important. And just a, I mean, just a couple of other ones. I'd I'd add that, you know, the the business plan is the financial bible, if you like, and inevitably, as part of a, a sale process, that will be gone through in a very detailed way by the buyer or their advisors, and understandably so. And and perhaps even in some circumstances, you as as the CFO and and the rest of the leadership team will be asked to warrant that business plan. So I wouldn't produce a, a business plan that you know you can't deliver. Of course, it should be stretching, but it, it should also be achievable as well. And then I, I suppose my last point is, is it, again, it, it can be tempting when you get three quarters of the way through the, the deal process, if you like, and it's all progressing well and due diligence is going ahead and, and you're in the throes of that. It is not to rush the disclosure process or indeed the, the warranty discussions because those warranties can last you know a period of time and, and will stay with you for a number of years and you as the CFO and and the leadership the rest of the leadership team will, will be giving those warranties so making sure that you you take the time to negotiate them and, and mitigate them where possible I, th I think is really important. Fascinating stuff. Now, we need to be bringing it to a close a little bit here. So just sort of stepping back a little. And so thanks for all of the uh, 
great examples from your experience. But thinking more broadly now for CFOs, what would you say are the most important things for them to be thinking about over the next sort of six to 12 months and then perhaps over the five-year time horizon? Well, over the, over the next six to 12 months, I mean, there, there's clearly a lot of uncertainty around at the moment. But I suppose my advice would, would be to cut out the noise. There seems to be a lot of noise around in the media and things at the moment about various things which may or may not happen. And I suppose the analogy that, that I'd give is I, I play golf and I, I kind of say, well, look, I know that if I'm on the fairway off, off the tee and I'm on the green in regulation, I, I'm going to be hard to beat. People are going to struggle to beat me. And I think that's the same that, that, that applies in businesses at the moment and for CSOs. Do what you can, do it to your best of ability and make sure that, that if there is noise out there, that, that you're not distracted by it. And, and probably leading on from that, I think, it's, I think it's very difficult for a CFO at the moment, unless you've got a, a really good crystal ball, to come up with a specific scenario that is going to win out at the moment in the business because there is so much uncertainty around. And therefore, what I've been encouraging the businesses that I've been involved with to do is, is to run some different scenarios so to have a model that enables different sensitivities to be built in so that you can quickly and easily run various scenarios, see what the financial outcomes are after different circumstances. And then most importantly, have a sort of a, a financial radar system in place, which enables you to sort of quickly and easily see, well, look, now we've taken this number of orders on this particular product or this level of revenue for this particular week or month, it's more likely that this scenario is going to play out than that. So those would be my sort of thoughts and ideas for the next six to 12 months. I mean, looking out longer than that, I think really that the finance functions and, and CFOs have to embrace automation. So the pressure is going to come on finance to deliver more value with less effort and to respond more quickly to the needs of a business. And therefore, to basically shift from being that traditional processing function to be much more about strategic partnering and therefore the ability to automate your, your core accounting processes are going to be absolutely key to doing that. And, and because the CFO is in a sort of privileged position, it, it's really not just the finance function that that you'll have visibility on or the CFO will have visibility on it. It's the other sort of services and systems and processes that are in the business as well, where because of your role, you'll be able to say, well, I tell you what, how can we just make this more effective, more efficient, more automated? And in that way, sort of bring everyone together to align behind the, the long-term vision for the company. I suppose the obvious challenge that that throws up for a CFO and the finance function is that if you are putting those automation processes in place, it's really important that the algorithms that support them and the data that supports that, that automation process is absolutely accurate, reliable and timely. And therefore making sure that as the finance function, you've got a really good handle over the sources of Maybe it's internal data, maybe it's external data. And, you know, that, that governance over data 
should really be an important part of the automation strategy and therefore within the CFO's remit. You know, it's it's a great opportunity for the the CFO to sort of really lead the governance and controls in this area. So it sounds like you see the, the there are some people saying that the future of uh, accountants is uh, limited by things like AI and automation. But it sounds like you don't see that, that, that the future of the accountancy profession sounds secure. I think so. You know, and I really believe that, that for CFOs to be successful, you know, they have to be broad in their thinking and their approach and be a real strategic partner for the business. And that is something that, as we all know, there's there's plenty of data out there. At the moment, there's only going to be more and more data, more and more information, and having the skills and the experience to be able to interrogate, analyze, and extrapolate that data is, is going to be a really valuable part of the CFO's sort of skill set and his team's abilities. Well, James, thanks for that. That sounds like a good place to, to, to finish. So uh, I really appreciate you sharing the examples and insights from your experience. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting for our listeners. So thanks again for coming on as a guest. No problem. Not at all. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. We're keen to hear your thoughts on this episode, so please get in touch at info at numeritas.co.uk with any feedback. If you'd like to find out more about James, check out his LinkedIn profile. There's a link to that on the show notes on the website. And if you'd like to learn more about BGF, you'll find a link to their website also in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the podcast series so far, please pass it on to colleagues and friends who might be interested. And why not subscribe using your favourite podcast app so you don't miss any future episodes of The Forward Thinking CFO. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We are trusted modelling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we are more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk.